Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quintet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Karen Woody, Matt Kelly, and special guest Christy Grant Hart. We take up Sam Altman, OpenAI, the Jarsky case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, Binance, and Shoutouts and Rants conclude this episode. I know you'll enjoy the Corporate Governance Edition. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of Everything Compliance. I should say the award-winning Everything Compliance. We have the full quintet today of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, Professor Karen Woody, and special guest Christy Grant Hart. Jay Rosen is performing uh, Mr. Mom duties today. So, gang, first of all, welcome back. I hope everyone who celebrated had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Mr. Armstrong, we're going to start with you. And we had some pretty large news over the week of Thanksgiving and into this week about Sam Altman, OpenAI, corporate governance, Microsoft. What intrigued you about any or all of those stories? Yeah, thank you, Tom. I suppose we'll start by not starting at the beginning. I suspect most of people, most people already are familiar with the story. And of course, some, Sam Altman, somebody we've talked about before on this podcast, I think in April this year, when ChatGPT was uh, temporarily suspended by the Italian Data Protection Authority, the Garanta, and Sam performed whatever the Italian for Volteface is when he originally said the uh, Italian DPA has no authority to suspend ChatGPT. Then he immediately replied saying how much he loved Italy. And then to his credit, he got on a plane to Rome and went to meet them. And I suppose in some respects, this sort of move fast, crash things try and work out afterwards has been illustrated by that episode with the Italian regulatory authorities and perhaps is illustrated again by the management changes that happened and then didn't happen and then the board changes that did. And uh, it seems to me that there are many more general lessons to be learned, I think, from a governance point of view. I think we still don't know a lot about the specifics. What we do know is that he was obviously removed on the 17th of January 2023, uh, uh, sorry, 17th of November, when the board says that he was not consistently candid in his communications. And I think, unless Matt knows otherwise than he often does, I think that's still almost the only statement we've got. As you said, Tom, there were some almost instant moves from Microsoft. And obviously, Microsoft is a considerable investor in open AI. 
and their CEO effectively offered anybody at OpenAI a role at Microsoft. There were others that said similar. Salesforce, for example, the CEO of Salesforce tweeted, I'm not going to call it X, tweeted and effectively said, if anyone wants to come to Salesforce, almost like it's you don't even need to submit a resume, just show up and I'll pay you. So a lot of tech uh, businesses obviously tried to recruit staff there and then. But interestingly, I think if I look at the numbers, at last count, 730 of the 770 employees at OpenAI signed a letter expressing regret that Altman had gone, including some of those who had made the decision slightly oddly. And obviously, on the 22nd of November, just in time for Thanksgiving, Altman came back into the organization. Now, the board's been reconstructed. It obviously is going to have, you'd expect, a closer dependency with Microsoft, given their role in, it seems, fixing the thing and putting it all back together. But I think there's a number of illustrations that are more generally applicable to governance and more generally applicable to the work of compliance professionals that are listening today. I think that is the whole makeup of boards is obviously something that we've talked about before, and we've talked about CEO risk before. There's an EY study in August, I think, which said that 35% of board directors of Fortune 100 organizations don't understand AI risk, and 68% of Fortune 100 organizations were looking for somebody with a technology background, particularly with a cybersecurity understanding, to add to the credentials on their board. And I think we have suffered for so long with this nonsense that we had in the 2000s of management speak about the balanced scorecard. And I've come across many organizations who bought into this theory, including a, I think at the time, particularly badly managed law firm that I worked for, where they focused on everybody must have a complete, their skills on marketing, on work, on relating to people must be identical across the scorecard. What that led to, of course, was balanced mediocrity, not a balanced scorecard. It encouraged people to be average to poor at everything. And as long as you were the same element of average to poor, then that was okay. Of course, with a lot of startups, their board calculate uh, their board has uh, is sort of unequal in skills, as we've seen with Fortune 100 boards. Often, areas like technology are lacking, but in the OpenAI board, it seems that they were good on technology, but they were missing other things. And I think one of the lessons I think is looking at. Whilst you don't want the balanced scorecard for the individuals on the board, you need them to be unique and special and good at what they do. The board as a whole needs that balance of skills. So startups that do things well have people 
people who understand the technology that the business is developing, but will understand commercial things, will understand how to relate with investors, will understand how to raise money, for example. And the perfect storm, I think, that OpenAI had is it had an unbalanced board who didn't possess some of the skills it needed. But it also had this really strange constitution, uh, a bit like, I don't know, elements of corporate governance and elements of Dr. Zeus. The If we find a, a, a competitor that's better at us, then we will pass our IP over to them and they can have a go. That's very odd for a commercial organization. And I recognize that OpenAI was this peculiar hybrid of a not-for-profit and a commercial organization bootstrapped on. But there's a lot of lessons, I think, that we can learn from this whole thing, including the challenges that early stage companies particularly have with a balanced board, and particularly when some of the board members are appointed by founders of the business. And there's an interesting article, I think, this morning from Ansayad, the uh, French business school. And they said, and I quote, good governance aims to reduce surprises and effectively overcome them when they arise. That's the role of the board. And in some respects, it's the role of compliance officers as well. You're trying to reduce the surprises that the organization faces and be fit for dealing with them when they do arise. And obviously, a lot of startup organizations are effectively houses of sand when it comes to compliance. Because trying to build things quickly, they often don't have those solid foundations in place. This incident, I think, tells us that we need those solid foundations in place. And that, again, is partly the role of compliance officers as well, I think, to help steady the ship and to help prepare the foundations for the organization moving forward. I know that Facebook, for example, had many failings when it set up, but I know because I know somebody who was one of those hires that one of the things Zuckerberg did well, I think, was to hire people older than him with more experience, more worldly wise, and to give them some power, at least in the early days, even to second guess what he thought. Now, he might not have done that perfectly, but from what I understand, at least he tried. I think for any organization, whether it be a startup or whether it be a mature uh, Fortune 100 organization, you have to recognize the gaps in your board. And that might be technology. It might be more conventional skills gaps, but you've got to fix them. And compliance officers can sometimes be instrumental in working out where those gaps are and filling them. And obviously, an understanding of compliance is often one of the gaps in larger boards. And then I think once you've done that, then you probably have to look at maybe three different areas. Ansai had called them sort of hardware, software, and peopleware. But basically, you're looking at those structures that have been possibly in part to blame at OpenAI. Things like shareholders agreements. Is there a mandate for the 
organizations operations what is it going to do who's controlling it what are its aims then you're looking at the software elements things like processes how do we uh, enable people to raise concerns how do we enable people to relate to each other and how do we investigate things when the stuff that troubles us and then you're looking at that people fit as well and as i said that will include being really honest with yourself if you're the management or the board about where those skill gaps are and to repeat we don't want to go back to the 2000s silly management theories of having everybody being mediocre at everything but we need a board that's composed of talented individuals who understand their spheres of responsibility, but are also willing to listen to the experts on the board who cover off other areas. So thus ends my rant. I think Mr. Marks had some thoughts as well, but I wonder if anyone else has any others. Jonathan Marks, you have thoughts, questions, or other for Jonathan Armstrong? Jonathan Marks? Calling Jonathan Marks. I think he's on mute. Oh, yeah, I'm on mute. I apologize. Hey, Jonathan, that's a great analysis of all of this, and, and thank you for that. But what about Microsoft's new Observer role? Uh, role? That's odd to me. I know yeah. they have a ton of money invested into this. And then, to me, this just feels like a good old-fashioned fight or disagreement between a board member and a leader. He wanted to move fast and furious, and there was one board member, I, I can't recall her, I think it was the chief scientist, Ilya, I can't remember her last name, yeah. Stutzkever, or I'm probably butchering the name, but this is, this is an interesting battle, in, including the fact that there's a not-for-profit tucked in here in the way that they're actually structured. I often wonder from an SEC's perspective and a disclosure perspective, you take a look at Microsoft's investment. Did they really jump in very quickly because what did they, I don't, they had a pretty substantial, is it a billion dollars invested? I think, I think it is, yeah. And, and, and that whole thing is curious, isn't it? Because effectively, Microsoft tried AI, invented a, a bot that did all sorts of bad things and pulled out of the market again. Uh, pulled out the market and then came back in again through this curious arrangement with OpenAI. And, and, and it's always been a curious arrangement, hasn't it? Ordinarily, if you're a startup-ish of the size that OpenAI were, and you've got an investment of the size that Microsoft made, then ordinarily that would include at least one or two places on the board. And I guess the confusion, as you say, was because of this hybrid are we a not-for-profit? Are we a for-profit? But you don't resolve a mess by putting your hands over your ears, closing your eyes, and singing la. And in retrospect, and, and even at the time, it was a curious arrangement, wasn't it, that so much cash is going on over, for seemingly no control at all. And, and obviously, there was some element of control there, because it seems that's the way it's panned out. But in some respects, it's more transparent if you do it through a proper shareholders agreement and places on the board, just as most private equity investments done, you'd have thought it would follow a more conventional structure. And perhaps it's 
this lack of conventional structure that's probably led to some of the issues. Yeah, I mean, I often wonder, and the other thing that I think is probably pertinent here to talk about a little bit too is the fact, the fact that the inmates here were really ruling the asylum. And 500 plus, or I think most of the employees signed a petition that they wanted him back or they were gone. From an overall cultural perspective, that's interesting all in itself. And maybe if anyone on the call can comment about that, because I think that's almost more fascinating than the disagreements that occurred at the board level between Ilya and and everybody else and Sam. Yeah. And and one of the interesting things there, isn't it, is a non-unionized organization behaved almost like it was completely unionized and the union had pulled the workers away it's it's a really strange phenomenal it ph- phenomena isn't it the way in which as i say by far the majority of employees effectively expressed no confidence in the board and there were microsoft salesforce and others openly trying to suck them in uh, to their organizations. So the rump of the board, if you like, had no choice other than to get back around the table and, and talk to Altman, I think. And, it, and again, how do, you, how do you then proceed from a governance point of view? Because even if you've diluted Altman's influence in the board, how do you prevent a repeat of that happening again were he to walk out and say he didn't like a decision of the new board, potentially you're just storing up problems for the future again, aren't you? So I'm going to first shout out to Mr. Armstrong for giving us a reference of English political history from 1632 with the rump. Kudos. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but let me talk about the board structure here uh, because it was as follows. OpenAI was originally a nonprofit corporation, and about two years ago or less, they moved to a for-profit corporation. The for-profit corporation was a subsidiary of the nonprofit corporation. So that meant that all decisions were eventually overseen by the nonprofit corporation. Microsoft had a seat, (coughs) excuse me, on the for-profit corporation board, but it was really just a board of advisors or a board of governors. They had no actual control. This corporate structure is, although not uh, usual, I've seen it in other companies where typically a company has made so much money that they create a nonprofit to distribute that money through charitable works or other initiatives that they believe important. Here we had that for the start of the organization. And I don't think it's a question of having a proper set of corporate governance standards or proper corporate governance structure. I think it's a question of reviewing the corporate governance structure that is in place and understanding what rights, roles, and obligations you have under that structure. So it was a little bit unusual structure, but it was certainly uh, known to any investor that was the overall structure and what could occur. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Matt for a question or comment. Yeah, just a quick comment. I I don't relish beating up on the board directors of the nonprofit that ultimately governed Mm OpenAI, but I'm going to because uh, you have to consider the several unique circumstances that allowed this to happen. 
number one, this happened in California where they don't have non-competes agreements. And if I were in charge, I would not have non-compete agreements anywhere, but I'm not. They still don't have them in California. So that allowed Sam uh, Altman just to say, I'm out and I'm going to go work somewhere else. Number two, they had a large investor in Microsoft where if the employees all wanted to rebel, it's not like most companies have a lot of places for 700 employees to go all at once. But Microsoft is one of the very few who could say, sure, we can hire 700 people. No, big deal. And then third, actually, Microsoft invested far more than $1 billion. It invested as much as $13 billion, but that was not all in cash. A lot of that was Microsoft lending its computing power to open AI. And it was valued as an in-kind contribution. So all of those unique circumstances really did allow for the opportunity where if fired, Sam Altman could just say, I'm going to Microsoft and I'm going to take everybody with me. And your company is then going to shut down when they close off your computing resources. That was all true. And the nonprofit directors should have been able to foresee that. That is my big complaint about them. I am not even necessarily upset with a nonprofit governing AI, and perhaps we should divorce AI development from the profit motive just a little bit because it is a very volatile technology that we're playing with here. But these board directors, they had one, one, and one in front of them. They didn't realize that altogether that equals three. What did they think might happen here if they did this? So that, as much as I do want to say we should slow our role on AI development, the nonprofit board here really screwed it up, and I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. So, so, real, so real quick, I'm a visual person by nature. So when I was reading through this, I'm like, I started drawing pictures because I, I, there were so many different things going on. So you have the board of directors, Matt, which was controlling the OpenAI 501c3 public charity not-for-profit, right, which then owned a holding company for OpenAI not-for-profit employees and investors, which was the majority owner of OpenAI Global LLC, a capped um, profit company in which Microsoft was the minority owner of. And then there were the employees and other investors owned this holding company. And then there was a relationship between OpenAI and the holding company with OpenAI GP LLC. That's when I read through all that stuff and all this gobbledygook, and then I'm like, that's interesting how this whole thing was structured, because if you take a look at what a cap subsidiary is, it's this novel concept and structure that's been adopted by some, but the, the for-profit subsidiary is capable of issuing equity, basically to raise capital and hire talent, but it operates under the direction of the not-for-profit. And so to everybody's point with kind of people should have predicted this and people should have figured out what was going on. You know, I think this gobbledygook or this spaghetti of a structure certainly doesn't help matters any, you know, any to any degree. But I'm just wondering, you know, if the, the key thing here is, you know, the lessons learned from all of this is, you know, you could say anything you want about open AI. And Jonathan Armstrong gave a super detailed description on what was going on there. But if we go back to, excuse the expression, blocking and tackling, and what really is fundamental here is you have... If you have good governance, right, risk management, you go around all the elements, good risk management, business practices and ethics, transparency and disclosure. The key thing here, which sticks in the middle, which is the hub, is communication. 
And the fundamental thing that I see and the reason why boards get themselves in trouble all the time and the reason that they don't know is because there's usually poor communication. And it usually goes in both directions. It's either senior leadership not providing the proper information to the board or they're skimping on the information or scrubbing the information or eliminating that information. And it's also the board not understanding their role and responsibility in providing strategic direction. And monitoring doesn't mean that you sit there and let things come to you. It means opening up your mouth and asking tough questions. And so you could say anything you want about this, but I think fundamentally, if we take away the lessons learned from this, is that we have to go back, and, and, and I've had this conversation with many of you before, and really dissect the governance here and forget the structure and all that other kind of good stuff. But I, I do think this is a fundamental, it's a fight between two individuals on the strategic direction of the firm. And I think it's a huge breakdown in communication. Say what you want at the end of the day. I don't care what comes out. I think that if you broke down the root causes of this, that's what you come to. We probably should have dedicated the entire episode to this, but I think we that we need to move on. One more. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, one more. Oh, I'm sorry, Ryan. Wait, hold on a second. Which is Ryan this way or that way? Wait, there's Ryan. <laughs> uh, and then my other question is, from an alter ego perspective, is this really Microsoft or OpenAI? Is it really one company anyway? Or how much influence does Microsoft have on Open? I, I, I just don't know that question. I can't answer that question. With that, we've got Matt with a hard stop at the top of the hour. So, Matt, we had a really interesting talk from a deputy acting a deputy attorney general Argentieri this week. What about the talk intrigued you the most? Yeah, so this was a talk uh, that happened at the big FCPA conference in Washington this week, where the I believe she is currently the acting assistant attorney general for the criminal division, Nicole Argentieri. I hope I am pronouncing her last name correctly. She gave a speech. She talked about a bunch of things. And she did, as Justice Department officials often do, she talked a lot about the importance of data analytics. And she did say, number one, that the department itself is now using data analytics to find FCPA cases on its own that it would then bring forward to prosecute. I have to admit, I was a bit underwhelmed in her examples of that because she gave only one, and it was more of an individual, a finance minister, I think from Bolivia, where they had analyzed financial records to sniff out a uh, individual personal prosecution for FCPA. That's cool for corrupt ministers and defense counsel, but for compliance officers, we're still waiting for examples of corporate misconduct that the department sniffs out with data analytics. What she did say that I thought was more relevant for compliance officers was, and here's the quote, just as we are upping our game when it comes to data analytics, we expect companies to do the same. And I think that raises an interesting issue for compliance officers is that <clears throat> the better your data analytics is, the more pressure you are going to face about voluntary self-disclosure. Because data analytics really is about looking at things in just the right way to gain some new insight into your company's behavior. And that's great if you can do it, but then comes the next step is once you have that insight, you can't unknow the fact of this misconduct that you've just discovered. And so the better you are at data analytics and rooting out various issues, the more things you have that you cannot unknow and you have to figure out what are we going to do with this? 
I will always say that self-disclosure is the best thing. Certainly the Justice Department would say so too, but it really be puts some tension under that idea, the cynics idea that, well, why don't we just keep quiet? Why don't we remediate this and hope nobody finds out about it? Because in theory, if the Justice Department is going to be better at data analytics on its own, maybe it will get better at finding these things out. Maybe a whistleblower will bring these things to the Justice Department instead. But one of their very first questions is going to be, what did you know, company? And if your data analytics brought this out to you nine months ago and you decided to keep quiet, that's going to be a very awkward conversation. Um, and in fact, if you look at the Justice Department's guidelines for uh, effective compliance programs, it does talk about questions prosecutors should ask. Were you trying to use data analytics in your compliance program? How did that work? Did you have access to the data? All sorts of questions that are basically driving at company. If we found this out through some other means, how come you didn't find it out? Is your data analytics really that bad? I have heard other Justice Department officials say that they tailor their expectations for data analytics. If you are a smaller company and you don't have a business analyst, they're not going to expect you to have whiz-bang analytics programs. But if you're a Fortune 500 company, yes, you do have whiz-bang data analytics and you do have business intelligence analysts on staff. And yeah, the department is going to expect that you use those resources to bring misconduct questions and compliance risks to light. And you probably can. A lot of data analytics can already be done with resources you have at your large company and with the data that the company is already collecting. And I do think that it was an interesting point to call out that really the better you are going to be at data analytics, the more you're going to have to really understand what you want to do with voluntary self-disclosure. Because you're going to have more and more things coming to light that, like I said before, you can't unknow them. So what do you do? And that's a higher level question the company has to grapple with about, are we committed to voluntary self-disclosure? Does senior management know that? Do other people know that? And I think that is probably the big takeaway from Ms. Argentieri's uh, commentary yesterday. So Matt, I would perhaps add a couple of other things that uh, maybe build on what you said. I think those comments really show that data analytics is moving from cutting edge to best practices and the next step will be table stakes. So if you don't have a data analytics capability, I think you're going to be severely sanctioned if you find yourself in an enforcement action. And then as far as the size of the company, if you're doing business outside the United States, you're probably a large, you are a multinational by definition. And so the companies that are doing business outside the United States should have the money to put together a data analytics program. And the one example that she cited to, of, I believe it was the Bolivian yeah. official, she also said that they're data mining public, public available financial records and other records. And I think we're just starting to see this, I thought the hiring of Matt Galvin last year was an important step or important event for the department that really went under the radar. And I think that his hiring and if he is given the resources to build out a team will help them understand what to look for uh, going forward. So I just think it really portended quite a significant shift. And if they can 
build this out, this capability out, and if they can figure out how to use it, I think it will change the nature of uh, FCPA enforcement. But I think Mr. Marks might have a different idea. No, Jonathan? I'm, I'm, I'm going to yield my time, Mr. Speaker, to Christy Grant Hart, who's <laughs> guest and said she had a comment. So, I, I just think, from my experience with most of my clients, they're so nascent or have no data analytics going on, especially in the compliance function. I think that there is so much expectation that the DOJ has, I just don't know if they've ever even been in a compliance program for so many of these companies, including large multinationals. Those are our clients. They are struggling with this so much. Most of them are still looking at just investigations data and training analytics for how much people have done and they don't have effectiveness programs to even look at that. So I'm not sure how realistic this is for most companies and maybe it should be, and maybe they should be making those investments, but I just don't see this on the radar as things other than words that people say we should be doing more with data or our analytics program and our monitoring. And it doesn't mean anything for most of them. And I, I don't know if there's more guidance is the answer to that, more examples for how companies can do it, and much less what the DOJ is doing itself with the Bolivian folks and public information. But I just, I think that this is one of those where there's a lot of talk about it and very little guidance and action in terms of what companies should actually be doing. Well, yeah, but why, let me ask you a question though. Why should they be issuing the guidance or setting policy? Fair, fair enough. But if they're going to do that, and they, then I think we have to have some better understanding of what it is their expectations are instead of simply using those words. I think that's a slippery slope because I think you could set the bars. You could set, everyone's bar is different. And mm -hmm. so what is what are we going to say now? Okay, fine. I've done go down the elements of a compliance program. We've all been through this exercise. Okay, risk assessment, check. Policies and procedures, check. Training, check. We do it. Okay, hotline, check. Data analytics program, check. What, to your point, what does it look like? And for everyone, it's completely and totally different. And from my perspective is people don't even understand process. They don't understand controls. How are you going to implement a data analytics program when all those other things are all broken? And then, then okay, then take in a global organization where you have cultural issues stacked up all over the place and everybody's doing everything completely different. If you're not on one platform, how do you deal with that mess? I, I think it's a slippery slope and I think it's one that I think they're setting themselves up because for me, from my perspective, when, when we're trying to help our clients, it, we're sitting here and we're saying, okay, fine, let's understand what the real issues are. What are the barriers, obstacles, and hurdles that are there for you to achieve your objectives? Do you understand your risks? Do you really understand your processes? And a lot of times, more often than not, they do, but a lot of times they really, they have a superficial understanding. And unless you have really this deeper understanding of all of this, then you're just creating mess. And I've said this ad nauseum 10 years ago, if you have a data analytics program and you're running data analytics and you don't do anything with it and it sits there and marinates and somebody goes in and looks at that data later and finds issues with that information, you're better off not doing anything than having a data analytics program. So All right. when we get the shout outs and rants, I'm already there. Uh, let's move on to the professor. Karen Woody, we had a really important case argued at the Supreme Court this week and I think it's Jarsky. So you want to tell us about why you think it's so important? Yeah, it's a it's hugely important case. It's going to have ripple effects well beyond the SEC. And I think, in fact, to the entire administrative state and structure as we know it. So the backstory is I'm trying to figure out how to do this in the shortest amount of time. Backstory is the SEC. This is, by the way, I'm coming from the car. That's how dedicated I am to this. OK, back to what I was talking about. 
the SEC has an in-house court. It's its own sort of mini government. When you think about it. the SEC can make rules, they can enforce rules, and they also can have this, they also have this judicial arm uh, and that is staffed by ALJs who are employees of the SEC. The process for this is that if an SEC enforcement action starts in the SEC courts with an ALJ, uh, the procedures are different than if they had been, if that case had gone to an Article Three judge, so in a typical federal court. Those procedures typically inure themselves to the benefit of the SEC. It's seen as the home court. And that applies to a number of things. The discovery rules are different. The timing is different. And so it's a little bit more fast-tracked. And then if you lose at the ALJ state at stage, you appeal that to the commission itself. And granted, this is the commission that had all voted to start this enforcement action before this even the case got off the ground. So there might be some sort of bias at that point too. So you have two bites of the apple, all within the SEC, and only then when you appeal the commission's decision do you appeal out to the D.C. Circuit. So an actual Article Three judge, the court would hear that at that point. So already the procedure feels pro-SEC. That said, ALJs and the concept of administrative court has been around since the New Deal, since the genesis essentially of, of administrative agencies. A few years later in the Administrative Procedure Act, we see the ideas behind this. And the thought was hey, let's fast track these things where, with agencies where we have experts in this field. This makes sense. Congress has allowed for this. They were not challenged too much, although I'll talk for a minute about a very important case in the 1970s that came up in the decision and, or in the oral argument this week. I say all this because I think the history of this matters. One other point of fact I will say in terms of history is in 2010 when Dodd-Frank is passed, there was a little provision, 929P in Dodd-Frank, that said the people who could be hauled into an ALJ proceeding at the SEC were no longer just the broker-dealers or people who are within the jurisdiction of marketplace actors, sort of a FINRA-like idea, but instead anybody could be hauled into the administrative courts. And at that time, in 2010 and later, everyone flipped out in the defense bar of, are we bringing FCPA cases now, starting at an ALJ stage? That's going to change the, all the discovery. We're going to really be on our back foot because that's a much different process than the typical way we would see this in federal court. So all that to say, comes this week, Jakarski, I don't totally know. I think it's a three-syllable name. Jakarski, out of the Fifth Circuit. This is a right-wing radio host. He's been dinged by the SEC securities fraud related to his hedge fund that's based out of Houston. And ALJ, this case is brought to the SEC and the ALJ, and he they find he violated the Securities Act, and they fine him about $300,000 in a civil penalty, and then demand that his hedge fund disgorge almost $700,000 in, in ill-gotten gains. So he appeals this. Eventually, this goes... He appeals us and says, by the way, I didn't get to have a trial by jury as I should be allowed under my Seventh Amendment constitutional rights. So that's the issue before the court is basically it's taking aim at this entire procedure, the structure of should we have people hauled into an SEC in-house court at all? This is not the first time we've seen this challenge. We saw this under Raj Rajaratnam's cases for insider trading. This has come up a lot. But right now, especially with this makeup of the court. There's a lot more, I think, sympathy from the right wing of thinking, hey, this maybe isn't that fair. 
the left wing championed in the oral argument by Kagan was saying, hey, actually, we've decided this already. In 1977, there's a case called Less Roof, where Congress said, hey, anything where we have allowed Congress to say that certain public rights are able to be adjudicated in administrative agencies. So why is this case any different? Well, Jakarski is saying, well, actually, this isn't just about the SEC's rights to regulate their own rules and regulations. This is a general common law fraud case they're bringing, but they're just bringing in their their home court advantage. This is a case that I should have the ability to have be heard in front of a jury. So that's the whole gist. And uh, I think, I hope it's self-evident how this could change the makeup of administrative state of other I might have lost you guys here. Am I still here? Okay. This will apply to the FCC, FTC, the EPA. There are a number of other agencies who have similar structures that allow for their own ALJs to hear cases of first instance. It'll have major ripple effects, I think. And I don't think this is, this feels like a trend we've seen a lot with the right side of the courts and even just the rabble rousing, certainly from the Fifth Circuit, of really trying to dismantle the power and extensive reach of the administrative agencies. That certainly seemed to be something that the justices were willing to hear. Certainly Kavanaugh, who, of course, came from the D.C. Circuit, where he often heard these cases. This is tied into whether or not we are still going to apply things like Chevron deference, it all feels like the same tone of just really trying to undermine the extent of administrative reach. So I'm not, I'm doing very short shrift. You could have an entire episode, I think, on just this case and its implications. So I'm going to stop there. But I do think what's going to happen here is that we're going to see some pretty big swings from this more right-wing court to take aim at the ability of the SEC to haul people into their sort of home court, to into their own courts. Go ahead. So, I have some, who has the comment? Start for <laughs> Matt. We're going to start with you, and then over to Mr. Armstrong. I would just want to cast a cynical note here that ultimately, let's all acknowledge the obvious. This is not really about this man's constitutional right to a judicial trial in a court. This is all about the right wing trying to defang the executive branch's ability to do anything. Period. And they now have larded the Supreme Court with a bunch of right wing justices who agree with these, I think, fairly cockamamie ideas that they're just conjuring up out of whole cloth that don't have any basis in legal reality. But ultimately, this is only part of what they want. They will look to gut many other laws. I have already seen that some of them are saying that laws on the books like the National Labor Relations Act. Maybe we've been misinterpreting that for the last 80 years or however long it's been on the books and the Voting Rights Act and everything else. It is all about disempowering the executive branch from being able to do things that right-wing people don't like. Ultimately, I do wonder how much this will really affect corporate clients because if you wind up with an ability not to go to administrative judges, you're still facing the possibility of going to a federal judge. Last time I checked, that is going to take twice as long. And so therefore, your lawyers are going to bill you twice as many billable hours to get to the same point anyways, which is that you're going to settle because that's what corporate litigation typically does. So I do think that there is a broader political issue here that we should all be alarmed about. But for corporate compliance officers wondering, how does this affect me and my job? Ultimately, I'm not sure it's going to have that much impact because you're still going to be wallowing through the same sort of enforcement morasses that we all have been for the last 20 years. 
I think that's fair. I think this will see this. Sorry, I'm just jumping real fast. I think this will apply to the individual clients because the only one's taking this stuff maybe to court because they have a liberty interest at stake in some of these. So that's why you'll see this in the insider trading, some or maybe the individual officers or compliance officers and whoever are also dinged in the corporate context if they're hauled in. But I think for corporations, you're right. We won't. This won't have much of an effect. Yeah, maybe an unanswerable question, if so. Sorry, Karen. But I wondered if it might have any effect on the criticism of the data privacy framework. So we talked about this when this was agreed. This was the replacement for Privacy Shield. One of the criticisms is that you effectively don't create a court by executive order. So the court that Biden set up was really a tribunal dressed up as a court and and i wonder if this case adds any fuel to the critics of dpf who say the the dpf court is actually a tribunal and a tribunal and a court are very different things that's a great question i think that will come up as a, maybe an, an analog situation I think the constitutional challenge here to the right, like Jerry, we just saw this also in terms of what penalty power the SEC could bring and whether this is punishment or not. We already saw ways to really try to keep cabining in the extent of the ability to regulate or to, to sanction, I guess I will not use the word punish, from administrative agencies. But you're right, that there will be, I think, some pretty clear analogies to even newer tribunals, particularly if they seemingly infringe on constitutional rights or have an overly zealous sort of ability to issue criminal penalties or penalties that look like a taking of their ability to do work, things like that, things that could implicate your constitutional rights. So I hadn't thought of that application, but I, that makes sense that it could go that way. Yeah, I think that there's it's an interesting parallel to what's going on with the SEC and its ESG rules or the, the likely probable promulgation of those that are coming out because there's West Virginia versus EPA that says basically, hey, Congress didn't give you uh, the power to do this. And so I think it's interesting that we're coming at it from two different directions to try to stop some of this so that Congress, you have to tell the SEC that it can require environmental disclosures because this is not something that they've been given the power to do. And then we've got this other direction saying the SEC court shouldn't be existing at all. I think there's some parallels with that, as you were saying, of dismantling what we've currently seen for many years is the status quo. I would just add that Matt uh, handled the point I was gonna raise about the national, then National Labor Act, now National Labor Relations Act. But uh, I would just say sometimes don't ask for something because you might get it uh, because these fraudsters who want to go in front of a jury, guess what? The jury's going to slam you. So um, good luck. Uh, Mr. Marks, what do you have for us? We can't get enough of you or Ryan. Yeah. So what do you have? Ryan's not on the good list today. So um, that's there in, in support of my friend, Matt Kelly. I went through that process myself and it's not fun. I want to make maybe what the best thing to do is circle back here a little bit, you know, because there are so many different things going on with the regulators, tribunals, and all kinds of crazy stuff between not-for-profit entities and board structures and things like that. I'll just bring this thing back to full circle, Tom, to be quite candid with you. One of, some of the fundamental things that I keep hearing out in the marketplace is we're getting away from some of the, what I'll call the, again, the fundamentals that I think can help organizations from a compliance perspective, from a governance perspective, from a risk management perspective. But one of the things that I keep hearing is 
the focus or the lack of focus on remediation. And I think there are a lot of organizations out there that get themselves in a pickle and claim that they're going to remediate these issues. But a lot of those issues are never really remediated to their full extent. And I think that's a real issue for any of the listeners out there. I think it's something that we need to pay closer attention to. I think it's something that the board needs to be fully engaged with and understand. I think that's some of the communication that I think is missing from an overall monitoring perspective. What's really going on with this remediation? Granted, it's an evolution, not a revolutionary process in most cases. And when it involves systems issues, some of those things take years and years to resolve. And I understand cost benefit probably better than most. But I think there are certain things that can be done. I think there are certain processes and procedures that need to be done that are just not done. And I just, I'm interested in everybody else's comments as well, because the word recidivism is something that I learned how to spell a long time ago, not by choice, but because you see these organizations that get themselves in trouble over and over and over again, and you just scratch your head and you go, what am I missing here? And I think if you go back and really look at this, a lot of times it's because they fail to remediate. And I think a lot of times it's because they failed to make some very tough choices. So I'll stop there and offer up comments from the rest of the group. So Jonathan, Christy, what do you got for us? I agree with you. And frankly, I think one of the challenges, and Tom knows this is one of my bugbears, is that the monitorship, the determining of whether or not there's a monitorship is so heavily weighted towards self-disclosure. So if you have self-disclosure and say, whoops, sorry, Jesus, this happened again. So sorry. They go, all right, well, you don't need a monitor now because you've been doing this remediation. And frankly, I think that the monitorship should be making sure for years that actual change is made and that it's painful and difficult. I worked on two corporate monitorships when I was at Gibson Dunn. I know that they're challenging, but done correctly, they should make a difference in that remediation. Or And I think that one of the problems is that we don't have that outside oversight and we need it. Hey, Matt, Justin, he was just appointed to the board of OpenAI. All right. Our special guest today, uh, we're thrilled to have her back, is Christy Grant Hart. Christy's been looking at the Binance settlement, but really from the compliance slash CCO angle. Christy, what about this massive enforcement action intrigued you so much? Everything about this intrigues you, right? When you look at what happened there, it's absolutely fascinating to me. So we had a really interesting firsts coming out of the CFTC and uh, OFAC, FinCEN. There was so much going on here. Basically, it's about the collapse of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance. The CFTC settlement is still proposed. A federal judge has to bless it, but we anticipate that this will happen. And just from the enforcement angle, it's a $4.3 billion fine. It's the largest one ever for the CFTC and for OFAC combined. And they got a monitor, which I was just speaking about. And I think that's a really good thing that they actually are imposing this, which is beneficial. Of course, they didn't self-disclose, so there we go, but still. The main thing I want to talk about is a man uh, who is their CCO called Mr. Lim, and he will be paying $1.5 million in penalties if they can find him. They don't know where he lives anymore, and uh, Binance failed to give an address for him, which is interesting. But it's for his role in totally failing to create or maintain a compliance program. He's also, interestingly enough, this Matt Kelly wrote a great article on this, by the way, in Radical Compliance, that he's severely banned, essentially. He's restricted. The language is very strange. He's restricted from essentially doing crime in the cryptocurrency area. So he's restricted from operating illegal digit, digital asset controls and failing to have know your customer or counterpart compliance controls. So, if, But if he does, he'll be right in the aim of the CFTC 
for doing these sort of things. Everybody freaks out when we talk about CCO liability and $1.5 million penalties, but the CFTC went to pains to say, no, we're not punishing compliance officers. We're punishing people who participate in illicit activities like money laundering. So what are some of their examples? For one thing, they never filed a suspicious activities report. So they never, ever filed one of those. And that is problematic when they were managing digital wallets and allowing transactions from our fantastic actors like Hamas's Al-Qassam Brigades, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, people that are not only on sanctions list, but also typically aren't those that uh, they want to be doing business with. The Wall Street Journal also reported on some of the chats that were found by the CFTC, uh, obviously not good ephemeral messaging in the way one would anticipate uh, a group like this would do. But he was found saying, and I'm going to quote here, that the compliance environment amounted to, quote, email sending and no action, and that compliance program was for media pickup, and I guess you could say faux show, which in this case apparently isn't for sure, but for show. So that's a pretty, pretty damaging quote. And the CFTC spent time issuing a lot of warnings that, hey, y'all, if you compliance folks don't do your job, we're going to come after you. So I think it still is a bit chilling. I think anytime you do have CCO punishment, that the community itself is going to be uncomfortable with that. But certainly Binance in particular, it, it was so egregious. It's absolutely incredible. So I've been fascinated by this the whole time. Christy, there has been a fair amount of commentary, I think, led by the New York Bar around a framework for CCO liability. That is generally in the SEC realm, and Karen may be able to weigh on this a little bit. The framework is somewhat loose, but right now it's generally whether the CCO engaged in gross negligence or basically put their head in the sand, they didn't ask for or have the utilize the resources to do their compliance work or were a part of the fraud or scam and scheme involved. This case seems to fall directly into category number three. And once again, recognizing this is not an SEC case, do you think that this case really warranted the penalty? And does it really impact how you might think about a potential framework for CCO liability? I'm going to I yield to Ms. Woody after you answer your question for her thoughts uh, one way or the other on this. Sorry, Tom, are you asking me for my thoughts on that? Or for, for Karen? No, your, your question and Karen comment. I don't have a question on that. <laughs> Go ahead, Karen. <laughs> my question didn't come through. Oh, is it down here? No. I'm sorry. Karen, why don't you tell us what you think? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I think the framework from New York is valid. I don't know if I see a big delta between that and what the SEC or even just a general Sarbanes-Oxley type review would be, but obviously extending that to corporate compliance officers. I think this often feels, and we talked about this, I think, when we discussed the compliance officer certification and also internal controls, to me, it feels like a lot of heads I win, tails you lose situation. Like once the cat is out there, something has gone wrong. The way that the way that a compliance officer has to, to really do their job, I, I think there's a couple of issues. One, I cur I'm curious if that means that they have interests that are now different from the corporation, meaning their own individual interests because of their potential individual liability for whatever they're doing. So they're scrambling to try to maybe save their own hide in some ways. That's one thing. But then also I do just worry about this 
you know, what we talked about last week of the strict liability of an internal controls violation. If, if it's already at this point, someone, something has gone wrong and someone has screwed up. And now more and more, the fingers are just pointing at the compliance officer. You're the one who should have caught this thing. So I see it as almost the same as like a, you're supposed to be basically our internal controls guy or girl. And so something went wrong here. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's, if that's helpful, but I, I don't know if I see a big difference between that and the way the, uh, the SEC would, would look at this. Mr. Armstrong. I, I was just going to remark that it seems that this isn't the only rodeo for Binance. They're obviously in trouble over NFTs as well. And I think this week there was a civil action launched over the, do we call him a former footballer? Now he plays in Saudi, Ronaldo, claiming a billion dollars from him. I guess that's about four days salary for him over his part in selling NFTs. And maybe it's fraud. Maybe it's the same issue as we talked about before that people don't really understand these products. A lot of NFTs, of course, were copies of things that were themselves worthless and they weren't worth the paper they weren't written on. And there's no problem in selling worthless tack uh, unless, of course, you say it's valuable tat. And that seems to be the allegation against Ronaldo here. But that doesn't look to be litigation that's going to go away. And as I say, $1 billion is, for most of us, quite a lot of money. Mr. Marks, you've been on a full extended rant throughout this. Do you want to continue that? I was just going to say, you're going to start to create frameworks for chief compliance officers. Mm -hmm. You better make sure that creates an 8K event because it's going to become ultra critical now for the investing public to know if, in fact, the chief compliance officer punches out for some reason that there's probably a damn good reason why. Any response to that, Christy, or should we move on? Yeah, I come back all the time to this Wall Street Journal article from a few weeks ago that said crypto is having a hard time getting lawyers and chief compliance officers. And frankly, who wants that job now? <laughs> Just who would want to put themselves in that position? One of the challenges, I think, with CCO liability is so frequently we see that they just don't have the power or that somebody is doing runarounds. And if you want to hold them liable for when you've got really bad actors or the company's doing the wrong thing. Ultimately, that's a dangerous game to me when you see how little power some of them have and how kind of beaten down they are from trying to do the right thing. And there's, you know, allegedly the SEC and the CFTC and everybody else are looking for complicity or active involvement in, in the criminal activity. I think there's a really strong slippery slope and there needs to be an assumption that the person is doing the right thing, frankly, unless proven guilty or otherwise, but there's not a mechanism for that either. All right. We are on to fan favorites, shout outs and rants. I'm going to start with that, Kelly, then swing back to Mr. Armstrong, back across to Mr. Marks for his continuation. Then Karen, Christy, and I will weigh in. Mr. Armstrong, what do you have for us? Matt Kelly, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Uh, I will keep it brief here, Tom. I do have a shout out, uh, much to my surprise, to the U.S. Congress, which earlier today expelled George Santos for being a fraud on pretty much everything except his name, although I'm not entirely sure we even do know his real name. Uh, but he was expelled earlier today. A, almost every Democrat did, and a fair number of Republicans also voted to expel him. And uh, I would just like to applaud 
the members of Congress for finally realizing, okay, maybe we should have at least some moral standards, even if that diminishes our power. And uh, when you have a four-seat majority, as the Republicans do, we still had a large number of Republicans voting to expel Santos anyways and cut that margin down to three. So good for them. George Santos never should have gotten elected in the first place, and it is good to see him go. And it is refreshing to see that members of Congress will occasionally still remember that they have some principles they're supposed to live up to, and then they voted to actually live up to them today, and miracles happen. As to whatever, what George Santos might do next, you know what, I think most of us should say, who cares? I'm flattered by the reception to my sausage story last week. I'm going to return to, maybe it's going to be an occasional series of tales from the Southwest. I'm still in the Southwest of England. A bit this more serious this time, Thank you so much coming for listening up to this almost episode of the award winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, you rate, and review it, this episode it was a wherever really great podcasts are listening to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in, the in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out the reports, articles, and press releases regarding and the topics from today's the, podcast. And a flood, a, a, the gang a will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of was the Compliance similar Podcast similar to another Network. event further up the coast from where I am now. Boss Castle, as I speak to you, is about three villages that way. And then a few more villages to the north. In 1952, there'd been a similar flood where 34 people had been killed. But in the Boss Castle flood, happy to say, no deaths at all. Why? There's a whole host of reasons why there weren't any fatalities. But one is two brave Coast Guard guys who were volunteers and they were meant to be watching the sea for potential disasters at sea, but saw this flood happening and looked up the valley rather than up to sea and called the Coast Guard helicopter, which you'd normally call for a sea incident, and thought, it's the same skills. They're going to lift people off roofs. They're going to lift people off the river. Let's call the Coast Guard helicopter. So they called the Coast Guard helicopter. They then stood in sewage for hours, drenched through, just as they were, directing the helicopter with their hands. Why? Because it was a valley the cell phone reception went down and the radio reception went down. So these guys were literally directing helicopters. And the other really great decision is the first helicopter pilot on the scene said, we need more. So they tasked every helicopter they could find. The Royal Marines had a commando unit further up the coast and they sent helicopters. And in the end, they had six helicopters ferrying to a makeshift heliport that they'd made in 30 minutes out of a football pitch. And they ferried about 150 people who they pulled out of the water in about an hour to the football pitch. Contrast, 34 fatalities in the prior incident. The worst injury in this incident was a broken thumb. So my shout out is to all those brave people and all those people who just made plans up on the spot. A lot of this podcast today is about how you need to plan 
for eventualities. But sometimes you need to plan on the hoof as well. So my shout outs to all those people who are involved in the Boss Castle rescue about 20 years ago. Mr. Marks, what do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? It's the season of almost giving right and doing good things for those that are less fortunate. And so there's a young man. I read this story. I can't remember whether it was earlier this week or last week, but there's a young man out in California by the name of Charlie Jeffers. And what Charlie is doing, which I think is remarkable, is Charlie was a big Lego fan when he was a kid. And he's taking old Legos and he's washing them off and cleaning them up and he's reboxing them and he's giving them out to to kids. And I think he's given out almost 3,000 sets already. And I think it's wonderful for this senior high school student to embark on such a, an event. I don't have the I don't have all the details related to all this, but I plan on finding out more because I'd like to help him. But I think this organization is called Pass the Bricks, which I think is so clever. And I just think there's so much bad stuff going on in the world today that having a young man like this embark on such a selfless type of an event to help other kids is something that he loved when he was a child is just absolutely remarkable. So shout out to you, Charlie uh, Jeffers. I, I believe he's in California and like I said, I think it's it's his it, the organization is called Past the Bricks. Karen Woody, do you have a shout out and or a rant for us today? I do have a shout out and tribute that I, I just pivoted because of I read the headlines just a minute ago. And so my shout out is to the now late Sandra Day O'Connor, who passed away today. She uh, was the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court. In 1981, she ascended to the Supreme Court. She was obviously a Reagan nominee and then sat on the court for about 25 years. And throughout that tenure, she penned or was involved in unbelievable number of very important cases, ones that obviously Casey related to abortion rights, affirmative action cases. Despite being a Reagan nominee, she obviously drifted, I think, a little bit more to the left. But her legacy even just for the fact of being the first woman itself is a legacy, but then also her incredible legal mind and her writing, I think, is one that we hopefully will not lose. I also think she stands for being a justice or maybe it was just in the era that didn't feel as political. She was very middle of the road, appointed by a Republican nominee, but was willing to, I think, hear both sides of the case and from both sides of the aisle. And I think She's someone that's worth remembering, particularly as we see a very politicized court right now. So my tribute today is to Sandra Day O'Connor. Well done and well said. Christy Grant Hart, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? Man, it's such a positive one today. Uh, I am actually going to agree with Matt Kelly from a totally different direction. Shout out to Congress for its response to the FDIC investigation done by the Wall Street Journal. The lovely quotes like, you should be ashamed to put your head in a bag is pretty amazing. I found myself loving the quotes from both the Republican and the Democrat side. And I felt like the response was real, that they were very serious about their response to the chair and asking why on earth there was a 2020 report that he did nothing about, despite the fact he'd been there 20 years and said, I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't in charge at that point, but you're on the board. Come on, people. So I guess that is a rant against the FDIC and how dare you spend all those years 
and a rave for the Wall Street Journal for its fantastic reporting and a rave for Congress for actually bringing him in, talking to him. And I think they really will do follow up. I've got faith in that one. Good job for asking about governance, corporate culture and trying to change things because it needs changing. I'm going to have a shout out today. That shout out is to John Reed Stark. John is a commentator, provocateur, thought leader, and many other things, uh, largely in the SEC space. But I want to shout out to him for his, um, he was the first voice that said finance is a criminal enterprise. And he was the first voice that said <clears throat> NFTs are worthless paper. And he has started that, I think, in 2016 or 2017. And he was a lone voice saying that for many years. And he was criticized. He was ridiculed. He was laughed at, shouted at. I saw lots of presentations where it was just screaming matches against him. And guess what? He was right. And it was, crypto was a criminal enterprise. It was a fraud. We have uh, the bookends of Sam Bankman-Fried and the demise of FTX on the fraud side. And now we have the criminal side with CZ and Binance. So, John, you just keep saying what you're saying and keep screaming what you're screaming and keep letting us know that there's reason that these rules and regulations have been in place since the 30s and why they worked then and why they work now. So my shout out is to John Stark Reed excuse me, John Reed Stark. Thanks so much and keep doing what you're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a great Everything Compliance. Thanks so much. And uh, I look forward to one more time, hopefully before the end of the year. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Are you befuddled by the Department of Justice's recent announcement of the requirement for a data analytics component to any best practices compliance program? Are you struggling with how to implement a data analytics program? Are you struggling with how to use the data that is in your organization currently? Well, we explore these questions and others on this month's 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program on Data-Driven Compliance. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.